This is the process.ink, episode number five. Welcome to the process.ink. I'm Tom Benedek. On this podcast, I sit down and talk the creative process with writers, TV showrunners, directors, producers, actors, executives, and other cultivators of truth and beauty. I ask them to share their personal work practices, methods, through projects they've done or are now working on. Hi, this is Tom Benedek. This is The Process, and I'm talking to Rick Rosenthal at Whitewater Films. Good morning. Morning. It's a little early, Tom. I mean, I don't know what the deal is when you drag a filmmaker out at like 6.30 in the morning. Do you think that he's just going to be a little more unguarded in that? Yeah, yeah. We want to find you raw and vulnerable and just open where you haven't had too many thoughts already. So just your brain will be fresh. But the concept of coming and not wearing clothes, is that a new way of interviewing people? Yeah, yeah. I want pajamas or naked, whatever it is. And I want to see you. You're you're seeing me in all of my glory. Yeah, yeah. It's perfect. Well, well, thank you for letting me in. Or actually, I broke in, but that's okay. My dog liked you, though. Yeah, so I, no, dogs no love me. I, it always works, and dogs are really good. Let's talk about various things. Do you like the title Laughing and Scratching, or do you like the process for this podcast? I like, what the, do you I think? like the process because I get it right away. I know what you're going to be sort of talking about. Laughing and Scratching, I'm not sure whether it's somebody who's gone off his meds and is having an allergic reaction, or I'm not <laughs> sure what what's going on. There, All right, well, that's... It comes from a DJ in New York I used to listen to, who used to say, I'd rather be, instead of kicking and screaming, I'd rather be laughing, la- and, scratching. laughing and scratching. Well, you so might that, need the context of that. Okay, so you vote for the process, so right. you know, we'll stick with that. I've done four of them as the process, so we'll stay with that for this Whitewater thing. I've known you for a long time. A really that, long You time. gave me one of my first jobs in Hollywood. Right. I kind of miffed it, but you No, still... we miffed it together. I mean, I think that's still a project that might, who knows, in about 10 years. Yeah. You might go back I and was look at thinking that. on the way over, I was thinking about it. I say, man, it's like a guy who dodged a draft and changes identity. It's like right now, that's like 60s, 70s right. Vietnam War project would work really well. And I met this guy recently at a dinner party, professor. He had gone to Canada. He and his wife right. had gone with him and right. he'd gone to Canada and started a new life because of the Vietnam War. And I hadn't spoken with anybody who'd been through that experience, and it had been like, it was like he had lost a limb of his life in a way. Yep. I mean, he had just yep. adjusted to something new. But you know what's funny is that was 76, 77, somewhere around there. Yeah. And I'll never forget, you wrote this scene in which the main character goes into a men's room on the road in a gas station, and he's got hair dye, and he cuts his beard off, and then he dyes his hair, and then he smashes his nose. The brutality of that was always so shocking and it was such a well-written scene and I remember at one point we had an actor who then died who was really interested and then I trudged out to Agura to try to get Nick Nolte to read the script because I felt like if I could get him to read that one scene yeah. he'd do the movie he but I could never wow. get him to read the script. I had not thought of that scene in a long time so it's interesting I've forgotten completely about it so yeah let's resurrect that project yeah. and All right. Nick Nolte could play his father now <laughs> you know, exactly he'd, probably, right. he'd probably be easier but he might shoot you if you try 
tried to break into his, you know, speaking of breaking into your house, you jumped a fence at the back of his place I to, did. to try and get him the script. But you know what? I brought my dog with me because I oh, figured okay. that would seem sort of like more of a boy and his dog adventure than it would yeah, be trespassing. That's good. That's like a movie in itself. <laughs> that's good. Sweet times, but you know, I feel like if the script had been better, I always feel that way. All of, If the script had been a little bit better, if I had really had it that period when I was working on it. I don't think that's it, true. I got to tell you, I don't think that's true. I think so much of it has to do with timing. Yeah. I mean, I've been involved in a number of projects that haven't happened. And you know from writers, they'll tell you, oh, I wrote these five screenplays and none of them sold. And then the sixth screenplay sells. And then all of a sudden, all those five that were in the trunk that had been deemed not good suddenly sold sometimes for more. I think it's a matter of timing and luck. And then what does the stuff actually can deliver when the opportunity mm-hmm. arises? Then mm-hmm. you have the fundamentals there. And I think that's true. I do say that to people. And I guess I should say it to myself as yeah. well. Stop beating yourself up for yeah. a script that didn't yeah. sell. Since that time, you went on and you made a number of feature films. You had a long career as a feature filmmaker. Right. You did Halloween 2, and you did Ruskies, and you did a bunch of other movies. Bad Boys. With, yeah, with Bad Boys Sean was Penn. like a huge, yeah. huge movie for you. And then you jumped into television. You just moved into television and really didn't go back and do features. Well, that's not really true. I mean, I flipped back and forth. I did a pretty well-known TV show called Life Goes On. It was kind of groundbreaking in the late 80s. Then I went back and I directed in the 90s. I also directed a lot of television, but I've gone and directed three or four features since just directed a film two years ago called Drones. Drones. I yeah. was going to ask you, but before Drones, when was the last you had made a feature? Halloween Resurrection, which was 2001. Okay. And then a lot of television in between, and then we sort of pulled the trigger on Drones. I think I actually might be missing something in between, but maybe not, actually. Time goes yeah. by really fast. And you worked with David Mamet on The District? Is that something you did? Well, I worked on The District, but David Mamet was not The District. So that's another show. I, that would have been fun to work. I think he was The Unit. The I think, Unit. I think okay. so. But The District was really fun. A lot of the television I've done, I've had a really good time, and I've met really interesting people who have become pretty much lifelong friends. In fact, I was doing a not particularly notable television series one time. My first day on the set, I was standing watching a DP light, a set, actually. It was like, this guy, this is a set. We've been here before. But anyway, I was standing, it was like watching paint dry. It was really painful. And I was standing there with my arms folded, and I happened to glance over to my right, and there was a guy standing about, oh, maybe five or six yards away from me, standing with his arms crossed. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And he just said, wow. And I said, excuse me? And he said, we are really having a rough day. And I said, who are you? He said, I'm the producer. I said, no, you're not. So what do you mean, no, I'm not? I said, you can't be the producer. He said, no, no, Rick, I'm the producer. I said, you can't be the producer. He said, why not? I said, because you just used we with bad news. We laughed and we became really close friends. And it was the beginning of a, well, that's probably a 10 year friendship. After that experience, he moved on to another show. I ended up directing on that show. Who is that? What's his name? His name's Jim Hart. Jim Hart. And he's a fantastic guy. I called him one day and I said, you know, we always said we wanted to work together again. I'm doing this little movie. Would you come produce it? That was Drones. The lead actor on Drones, who had known me from another film that I had produced, said to me, oh my God, you found you to produce your film when you were directing. Well, he understood that Jim Hart and I had just bonded in a way that our methodology and our mm. philosophy and all that was really similar. And that was coming out of a TV show in which I met him. And we just became friends. And then years later, we worked together on an indie feature. And so TV, in terms of the bonding experience and the being with people experience, all the grouping is much different from features. There are a series of processes where you're with teams of people, but right. it sort of shifts through it. And then you see them again, maybe on another show. Right. Television's like a team sport. 
you play with the same players. To use a baseball analogy, you get a lot of starts. You get a chance to throw the ball a lot. You yeah. get to see what works and what doesn't work. You don't win them all. Sometimes you hang a curveball and gets hit out of the park, and you're like, oh, man, I didn't do that good a job on that show. But you have this team around you. Sometimes they actually make amazing catches in the outfield, so nobody realizes, oh, Rick really fucked up on this because somebody has made a save that doesn't allow anyone else to see what you had done. That takes a long time. I mean, you see it in features where a filmmaker works consistently enough to have his or her team come back. Eastwood comes to mind as a director who's really put a team together and they've stayed together and then occasionally players go off and new players come in. But we had the same DP. I was lucky to work with his DP, Bruce Surtees, on Bad Boys and then on a bunch of other films that Bruce was fantastic. But then Bruce wanted to go on and move on and Bruce's operator then became the next DP in in the stable for Clint. And then the gaffer, eventually Tom Stern, became a fabulous DP who had been the gaffer on Bad Boys. So there was a whole team there and I actually benefited from it because when I did Bad Boys, Tom Stern was a gaffer and Bruce was the DP. And I had these guys that had worked knew each other so they had a rhythm and a way of working you could learn from them and they were open enough to include me in to the process in TV, you're working on Transparent now. Instead of being a director, which you've been all these years, right. is this the first time you're a supervising producer? It's not the first time I've been a supervising producer, but it's the first time I'm a supervising producer on a show that I'm not directing on. And they won't give you a shot on Transparent? Well, there's a feeling on Transparent that they really want to support female directors and trans directors. The old white men are a dying breed. And they're like, you guys have had your chance for a long time, and now it's our turn. We're human, too. As a supervising producer, what's your job? In terms of, like, the entire season, what do you do during the season? Well, I want to step back for a second and answer that holistically. I feel like director is a storyteller. You don't lose those gifts. As if when you're hired as a supervising producer, you come in as a storyteller. Now, what does that mean in this particular instance? I read all the outlines and I give notes on the outlines. I give notes on all the scripts. For all the scripts for the entire season? For all the scripts for for all the scripts for the entire season. Is there more than one supervising producer or are you the guy? I think there's another supervising producer. There are two writers who are also dubbed supervising producers, which is an interesting phenomenon in television is that everybody seems to need a producer credit of some sort. It's hard to know. It's been explained to me, but I still am not straight. I think it probably varies from show to show. Absolutely. And what happens is that you change titles, but your job remains the same. So I was a consulting producer last year. I'm a supervising producer this year. My job is exactly the same. You got a promotion. Well, I think so. I'm not sure. The paycheck looks a little bit better. but Okay. Congratulations. So so I work on giving notes. The very beginning of the series, I talk with Jill a little bit about what does being a showrunner mean to her. I have been involved in a series a long time ago called Life Goes On. I co-executive produced that with Michael Braverman, who gave me one of my favorite phrases of all times. One time he said to me, you know, Rick, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make a duck wear a saddle. And I thought that sort of summed up Hollywood well for me. But one of the things that Michael and I had always talked about on Life Goes On was it wasn't enough to sort of plan season one. It wasn't enough to plan season two. You really wanted to figure out, where's the show going? What's the long arc? If you had five years, if somebody said to you, hey, Magic Wand, this show's on for five years. Where are these characters going? In your mind, where are they going to end up five years later? And that doesn't mean that when you start out making that plan, that it doesn't change. But at least they're moving towards something. Transparent was conceived really as a each season is a five-hour movie. And so there's some huge advantages to that. 
because also what I do as well as doing script notes is I go into the cutting room and I'm kind of the producer who's involved with the cutting of the shows and the overseeing not only just individual scene by scene editing but like should certain scenes that are in episode three really be better if they were in episode four that requires a lot of space in your brain to know that well the editors that. often say to me how did you know that that would work and i said well and this is going to sound really bizarre but i played quarterback in high school and a tiny bit in college one of the things as a quarterback you had to do was see what existed in the present and imagine what would exist in the very near future by that i mean that when a wide receiver ran out and cut left and was headed to the goal post were three throwing the ball not where he was but where you thought he would be in two or three seconds when you edit a lot of the larger issues are not the shot-to-shot adjustment, which I think is important, but also how will these sequences fit together and create this structure that may be an episode or two out. That leads to a season, and that season is only part of the arc if there's a five-year plan. So you could be thinking about, well, eventually they're going to get together. Eventually this person is going to go in this direction with their sexuality. Then they're going to go in another direction. You just don't and, know. and along the way, something changes. Mm-hmm. And an actor you thought was going to be great turns out not to be as great. Or uh, somebody has a bit part and you're like, oh my God, we need to write that part. Yeah. And that changes the trajectory. Yeah. So I, what the actors do can change what, you know, okay, let's plan for that in the next season. That's the beauty of television. Radically, radically. Show. And also what the actors do changes the episode that they're in. Because Jill's style and the style of the directors and the way the show is shot is a very improvisatory style and that leads to a very kind of quasi documentary approach in the editing room because what happens is yes you have a script but the actors are beginning to deviate somewhat from the script in terms of performance and where they're going so when you get all this footage in the cutting room if you just try to put it together according to the script, well, you've missed the mark because it's already become something else. So what we always do is look at the footage and say, what show does this footage yield to become? If we look at all this footage, where is it going to take us? How many episodes will have been shot before you'll be able to do that? You start doing that with the first footage that comes in from the first episode? Or? Well, I generally have some ideas that are out there from reading the scripts. I share them, and a lot of times everybody just looks at me like, the old white guys going around the bend finally. <laughs> Later on, as the shows come in, and I keep extensive notes, I keep notes on my notes and, and all of that. A lot of times I will just say, I think that we may want to move a scene here. This year, the scripts have a little different pattern than last year. Last year, we did, in the first season especially, we moved scenes that were in episode two, became the opening of episode five. And that was a very new experience for me and probably for everybody else because most series don't work that way. Most series, you finish shooting, you have eight yeah. to ten days of a post, and, and, and you're on the air. locked in. Everybody down the line in the executive area and the producers and all that, they're expecting this is going to hit the marks that yes. we had planned and that we saw in the script. Right. Or maybe there'll be a small deviation. But also you're on a different time schedule. Yeah. So on Life Goes On, for example, there were occasions when we aired on a Sunday night. There were occasions when we were literally mixing a show on a Friday. Uh-huh. We had one scene that was going to come in. 
that hadn't been edited that was going to come in at midnight Friday night. We knew that that scene had to be one minute and 12 seconds because that was the slot. And then it would ship out and it would be on the air on Sunday. That was Life Goes On on Transparent. All 10 episodes are delivered before they ever air. They're all together and we have an opportunity to look at them as a five-hour movie and to see, gee, is the arc of the whole five hours working? Is there a delivery date that's hard and firm or that's something? No, no, there's a delivery date that's hard and firm because it's released as a bundle. All 10 episodes are released on one day. And and they have a schedule. Yeah, so this season of Transparent, season three, will be released in September. Okay. And so Great. we now Great have forward. our sort of marching orders. Yeah. There's some time, but there's a lot of posts. Well, do. we're shooting the last, second to last episode right now. It's the last episode starts in a couple of days. And how does the improvisation work in terms of what goes on in the set? There's a script. There are lines of dialogue. How do they handle it? Well, Jill's directing style is very much to encourage the actors to explore the material as written, and then to jump to use that as a springboard. There's a certain amount of improvisation in terms of lines. There's a lot of improvisation in terms of blocking. Is that done in rehearsal or is it just straight right to shooting? There's a little bit of rehearsal. Depends on each scene. Like a table read? There's a table read on every show. But before the table read, there might be a rehearsal of where there's no. Nope. There'd be reading. a table read, and then based on the table read, there'd be some changes. Table read is generally a few days before the start of the shoot of that episode, and then during the actual shooting is a certain amount of improvisation, and sometimes not at all. I mean, it depends on also on the director and on the material. But Jill's style is that she would shoot the script and then say, "Okay, now let's sometimes have other ideas sometimes or you want to try something sometimes." Sometimes in the process, and Jill's very much about giving actors a certain creative freedom to interpret even as they're rehearsing the scene as written. Very often, she will encourage them to go where their instincts are leading them. And that's for certain actors, they're not comfortable doing that, and some actors are made to do that. So in casting, she's chosen actors who are Yes, I would say yes, but, but sometimes there are actors who think they're fluid in that style of thinking, and then they meet guys who really are fluid in that style of thinking and we had it the other day I watched a scene in which Jeffrey Tambor is just a phenomenal actor and very gifted at improvisation and also willing to go a lot of places to explore and I watched a scene where he was playing opposite a very veteran actor who I think has a lot of chops but this actor I think was startled by the level of improvisation and sort of not quite sure what was okay and what wasn't and, and although he's very good in the scene, yeah. if you really know acting and you watch his eyeballs, you can see him sort of like just wondering what shoe is going to drop yeah. next and holding <laughs> his own, but with a little bit of that little scared stallion look, like, oh my God, which way is it going to go next? And does that work in the story? It depends on the scene and what yes, the some, character is. Sometimes, sometimes it, that sometimes it does. off center, there'll be some moment that will In occur. this particular instance, he was supposed to be the father figure okay, as very so, yes, seen. So that's to know everything. Yeah. And it works fine and you would never know. If you saw that scene and I hadn't said that to you, you would think that that scene was fine. But if you then go back and look, you can kind of see a kind of anticipation and a relief when nothing goes further away from where the script was. In terms of the Bible for the series and looking long-term at a season, from the first season, was there information about where it could go in five years or was it just like, I know for now, but it wasn't until it worked that it was decided to keep going that it was pushed into the future? There's definitely a little bit of an idea of the first year was about transitioning. Who am I? The second year was 
where did we as a family come from? That's why this whole thread of Berlin in yeah. 1937-38 fits in. And this season, I think we look hard for what is the theme of this year uh-huh. and of this season and figuring that out and also feeling like last year, I think the shows were really strong and yeah, everyone thought they were really strong. But there was also a feeling that sometimes we didn't let the characters breathe enough. This year was, what if we had fewer scenes and we didn't try to tell five stories in a half hour, maybe we told three stories and we uh-huh. gave a little bit more breathing room and we let the characters so that the scenes are a little longer and the actors have a little more room and the characters uh-huh. have a little more room to grow and develop within scenes. There's a kernel or a theme for this season that the writers and that was just worked through. Yeah, I mean, I kept asking for us to just state it. Let's be architects and build a foundation and then we can cover up that foundation. No one else has to know what our theme is, but at least we'll all know. I'm not sure we ever quite agreed on exactly what that sentence was. I mean, I pitched sort of the state of grace that everyone was trying to find now in season three, a way to live together in a state Uh of grace. Make the relationships work. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of narcissism and each character sort of is looking inward and not yeah. outward and the idea here was the beginnings of relationships also that if you uh-huh. looked at the first two seasons characters had mostly failed relationships yes. so yes. we were looking at the possibility of having a longer term relationship Allie gets into a long term relationship with her poetry teacher the mom finds this relationship with a guy that she meets at her temple he's sort of a stabilizing masculine influence these themes kind of begin to cross which is about a family trying to find grace or trying to find harmony whereas the year before it was about exploring the origins of the family who are we there'll be tensions that some will struggle more with that and see that the others are finding stability and trying yes. to be influenced by it or learn from Yes, it. and so, for example, failures. without being a spoiler here, there's a theme where Allie, who is now in a stable relationship, sees her brother kind of going toward the dark side, uh-huh. and she actually embarks on a rescue mission yeah. to sort of save him. And that wouldn't have happened the year before. It's interesting to be at the beginning of the season or the end of the last season where we begin to have these discussions. Well, what will the year three look like? I'm in the writer's room on and off because I'm more in the editing room than I am in the writer's room. For example, I'm in the writer's room after we do a table read and we do notes. So I sort of come in and out of that, but I'm in the process enough so that I always know pretty much where things are going. I'm trying to make sure that they actually go where we said we wanted them to go. They outline the whole season more or less and then they start writing. We do outlines of all the episodes as the outlines feel good off writers go and then sometimes let's say episode seven the outline is not quite working yet but episode eight seems to make a lot of sense the writers will go off and break eight as a now as a script and somebody will continue working on seven to try to get it to fly they'll go off and write them and then there'll be a collaboration after they finish the draft with the other writers yes yeah i mean it's an active she'll step in and start rewriting herself it's an active it's a pretty active writer's room i think jill sort of moves a little more where she's needed. I mean, each season has changed for her a little bit. She has a pilot that she's about to do. How does she jump between that and this show? I mean, she just sort of has a very busy day and just does that. Some compartmentalization and she has some really good people working with her. And is Catherine Hahn gone from this season or is she going to be back? Isn't she in the other show? She's going to be in the other pilot. 
It's hard to say we see her sort of have a pretty major crisis. We don't know if she disappeared. She is absent from the last two episodes. All right. Well, looking forward to it. Going back to season Bibles, while working on season three, are there discussions about season four? Or is that like, let's not worry about that now? I'm sure that there are thoughts, and I think Jill is, and, and I encourage her early on to sort of keep a journal, as you might have it, as to where you think you might be going. So she might even be in season two thinking about noting some things about, well, in season five, I'd like this to happen. But we don't get into discussions about where is the uh-huh. next season generally during the season. It's a pretty yeah, uh, it's, focused... Yeah, you got to do what you're doing. Yeah. And there's certainly enough richness in the situations to warrant what could possibly happen later. There's a lot of things that could possibly happen in right. the show. Just one more question about that. I think when writers think about ideas for characters, they don't necessarily think right away about how to squeeze as much out of whatever those big conflicts, those big things about them are, and be able to modulate it in different ways over a long period of time. Do you have any thoughts about how you see that working? You know, like if someone, this person should be with that person, they're going to get together. This is going to fall apart. I'm working on an outline and I have a lot of things, ideas in the outline. I realized those are all results. That's not story. That's just stuff that has happened. And I need to figure out how to build it out and just stretch it out so that we really can explore the process of these things. This new television, the limited series, the 10 episodes, are the novelistic form of the 21st century. And it has to be conceived that way so that no longer are you thinking episodic. You're thinking about this bigger story that you want to tell. I would say sort of as the novelist does outlining as opposed to a screenwriter or a short story writer or a screenplay writer or a um, episodic television writer. Mm-hmm. As a novelist does these outlines, they're way longer views. Some novels cover 30 and 40 years or lifetimes. And so that's where I think the similarity is this kind of television needs to sort of look at the way novels are structured and layered and things are set up and developed over a long time. And most television hasn't been like that. That's why I think we're seeing some of the shows that come on now in these limited series have a more novelistic approach. And therefore, the characters are more interesting and more satisfying because they're not short term. There's this long arc that might not pay off until season two or season three. If people engage with the characters, they engage with the situation and they are intrigued by what's going on, they'll just be hungry for wanting more and more and more and want them to keep moving. It gets back to old time storytelling in which there were sort of these installments and people waited for the next installment to come out and I've actually pitched that they up the order of Transparent to 12 episodes rather than 10 and that they release 6 and then 3 months later they release the second 6 rather than doing it all in one but so far that hasn't met any traction. That's more like the British model of the 6 episode but that's those are hour long generally. Right. Well not necessarily like the office is half hour there's something to that. And so you're not just releasing everything, boom, and then there's an entire year without a yeah. new... And in terms of this form, it is the most exciting thing that happened in film entertainment in a long time. It's a new form. Absolutely. And for example, an old friend of mine sent me a script that I really like, by the way, and it's about a teenager growing up in Cuba in the late 50s, early 60s, and he's the son of an American serviceman who's stationed in Guantanamo Bay. It's about life as an American teenager in a foreign country and with military parents and all of that. He ends up running off and joining Castro in the mountains. I said, look, I love this. This is a really good script, but nobody's going to make this as a feature. But if you were to take this now and reconceive it as a potential six to ten episode series of 
about an American teenager in Cuba oh. in the 60s, I think that's a really viable, yeah. interesting series. Never going to get made as a feature, but yeah. I think that's the sort of thing that's that could people get people would love to see. I think yeah, so. I think so. Bring a family in Cuba at that yep. time and what goes on. You want to go to the U.S. And, and the backdrop of the revolution yeah. and all of that. I yeah. think it's really fascinating. So there's an example of an idea that 15 years ago that would be an HBO movie or yeah. a Showtime movie. But those movies have gone. Yeah. There are no movies yeah, so, for television. So to do these kinds of things, unless you do it as an independent feature. But that's an expensive, that's well. an expensive independent feature. That- it's very difficult. Right. Or a novel that has a track record, there's a built-in audience for it. But yeah, that's all gone in the feature realm. And now it's in this... Yeah, realm, and, 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 it's, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because what's happened is the middle features has dropped out. There are very few 5 to $15 million movies. Those are pretty much gone. What's happening is independent films are now mostly under a million dollars and those budgets dictate the kind of stories and the kind of production values that you can do. And so it doesn't mean you're limiting the creativity, but it does mean a little bit you're limiting the scope of those films. And so you now have a proliferation of, let's say, under a million dollar movies, and they tend to be personal, and they tend to be shot in fewer locations and all that. So you have a tremendous number of those films, and not a lot of variety within that, angsty, personal and all good stuff but there's a saturation there and what's been lost is this kind of mid-range exploration of story and adventure and then you get past 20 million dollars you're up at sort of quasi tent poles where you need big stars and then you get up past that and you get into the really big movies with hundreds of millions of dollars of of effects and so i don't think the creativity has changed i think the ability to launch it maybe what the audience wants if the audience wanted it's also what the studio what's practical for them in a larger well let me ask you i mean do you believe that if you build it they will come no when you were saying about the under one million dollar and the lack of when i'm working with with student writers or people working on projects that they're trying to develop i find myself giving them a little talk about that if i see like production values that are really stretching and that that aren't going to yield that much difference to the project in terms of what the true characteristics to me are the story i will tamp down i just tend to sort of try to tamp it down and get them into a range where i feel like okay you could actually get this made somehow i feel i don't like doing that right it's right no no and and that's because the pragmatic world Mm. at some point intervenes a really close friend of mine is now a producing fellow is now trying to direct a film and he's got a script and the script opens at a big wedding and he's saying to me do I really need this wedding and I'm saying well here's the good news about the wedding so it gives you a scope and a size that you normally wouldn't get in this movie but right now it's only about showing scope and size and you don't really have a good scene if you're going to spend the money to give us that scope and that opening then make sure that scene is really a great scene and make sure that the drama contained within is really compelling and interesting and intriguing and then you have a win-win right now you're just opening to give us scope to your point a little either fix it and really make it good or get rid of the wedding let's segue now into your whitewater films yep. i guess was your just personal production company at yep. some point and now it's a family business. Whitewater's on 25 credits on IMDb. You have a Kickstarter going now for a documentary yep. about Robert Reich and you've had Kickstarters in the past. I think I joined one for Fat, Fat Kid, Kid Takes yeah. Over the World yeah. and you've been in this for a while now. Just talk about briefly how that began and what you're up to here. Well, in 98, I was asked if I would teach at the AFI. And at that time, AFI had a very distinct curriculum that distinguished it from USC and NYU, and that was they had working faculty. And the whole idea was it was not tenured faculty. It was working faculty who 
came and went because they were working on projects. It was more complicated for scheduling, but it provided a lot of blood. And so I agreed, and that sort of evolved from teaching into actually chairing the directing program. I taught there for four years. One of the things I felt was, whether you liked me as a teacher or not, if you were a student, was relevant, but somewhat irrelevant, because if you look to your right and you look to your left, you had phenomenal fellow filmmakers that you would learn from. The way we got phenomenal fellow filmmakers was to have a really strong admissions procedure. When I went to teach there, I also was a member of the admissions committee. We worked really hard to get top candidates to come to the AFI. Out of that experience of teaching, the first couple of classes I had, I just had phenomenal students. And I became friends with a lot of them. I mean, these are really the brightest young filmmakers in the country. And if you really like film and you're surrounded by really interesting ideas all the time, you begin to admire those people and they exchange ideas and pretty soon you have friendships. While on the admissions committee, in the end of the first year, I read a script that I thought was phenomenal. And I happened to flip to the title page about halfway through, and I saw the guy's email address. And I was going to send him an email That's telling great. him how much I liked the script. And then I thought, well, I don't know if I should do that because, one, I'm only one member of the admissions committee. And two, his script is fantastic. His supporting short films are okay. I don't know for 100% he's going to get in. What would be worse than not getting in would be getting some glowing email. Uh, email telling and then you don't get in so I didn't but he did get in and I told him how much I liked his script when I started teaching him he said well Bad Boys is one of my favorite films it's one of the films that contributed to my wanting to be a filmmaker and all that I got to know him pretty well and I got to know his sensibility and I had optioned a book I said to him I think this is a book you would really like and he read it he came on to write this screenplay and while he was writing the screenplay the original script that he had gotten into the AFI on won the Nichols screenwriting award and he had a deal to direct it. And then as he was working with me on my adaptation, I would hear these horror stories about how this company had gone bankrupt, but they had promised that he could direct. But now there was a company that wanted to option his screenplay, but they didn't want him to direct. And finally, one day I said to him, you're trying to make this film for $3 million and you're a first-time director. What if you made the film for $350,000 and you'd have control and I think you'd have a better time and it wouldn't be as big a leap and all that. I said, I think I can find that money for you. I'll put up a little money and I'll help you find the rest. The next day, he and his producer from AFI came in with a budget of $175,000. They were going to shoot it on DV camp. And I said, no, that's not realistic, but three fifty dollars and six Super 16 is. We put that together and right. it became that's a fantastic. film called Mean Creek. And Mean Creek got into Sundance and sold for twice what we had made the film for and sold to Paramount Classics and was invited to Cannes. And it seemed like that's awesome. This is easy. Well, no, it wasn't easy. It was just the first one that happened to have all the right elements. And that got me started. That was the first thing that I had ever produced that I hadn't directed. I had a lot to learn, not so much as a producer in terms of nuts and bolts of producing, but as a producer who was a director, because there was a tendency to want to micromanage and not let the director fail and all of that. I mean, I think that your role as a producer there is to make sure that the ship doesn't hit the rocks or at the very least doesn't hit the rocks under full steam. Yet at the same time, you have to give a certain amount of creative freedom to get dangerously close to the so rocks. you have to treat the director like he's one of your actors. And sort of like, that's just stepping back from it in a way. Right, that's, but it's, it's hard when easy. you see the rocks looming. You have a responsibility not only to your money necessarily, but also you have investors and you have people that you've convinced you were going to manage their production and their money. 
there are a lot of competing factors. But the success of that film enabled us to kind of launch the idea of making small, under a million dollar movies with a first or second time directors because there's a certain creative energy there. Theoretically, being able to keep them off the rocks. You know, we've had pretty good success on all of those fronts. We're still looking for a film that had the same financial success that uh-huh. Mean Creek did. And so. so you get investors and you break even or you lose money or you make a little money. How does it go on these Pretty things? much just the way you said. Sometimes we come close, sometimes we break even, sometimes we lose some money, sometimes we make some money. A long time ago, I was talking to a money manager out in New York. We were talking about raising money and he said, you know, Rick, people that you're going to approach, they're not so concerned about making or losing money. They're going to invest. They have the money to invest. What they don't want is the two E's. They don't want to be embarrassed and they don't want to be embezzled. As long as you give an honest accounting of the process, I think you're going to be fine. And they become interested because of the subject matter or because they just like being well, engaged in these kind of the, things? The other day, I was talking to somebody who may invest in a saving capitalism, which is this document, this Robert Reich documentary. He asked me, explain to me about investing in the movie business. He said, I've, I've spent a lot of money in politics. I've never invested in the movie business. And I said, listen, investing in the movie business is this strange combination of buying a painting and going to Las Vegas. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when you buy a painting... They're both great things to do at certain times. Right. right. <laughs> but when you buy a painting, you buy a painting because there's something about that painting that moves you, excites you. You want to look at it. You want to put it on the wall. You want others to see it. You want to share it with people. And you hope that it appreciates. But your goal in buying the painting generally is not the appreciation of capital, of your investment. When you go to Vegas... You pay to have a good time. You hope that you're going to come back with more money in your pocket than you left. But the fact is, when you look around and you see all these hotels that are there and being built, you know that they're not being built because everyone took their money home with them. They're being built because people left their money behind. So mostly what happens is you go to Vegas and what you come back with is memories of a good time. So investing in the movie is somewhere between those two. And the other major difference is that you're causing something to be built. You're actually involved in the building of something that has a long history to it. That's a very strong, convincing argument if someone has the money. Right. And it's also a very honest honest set of statements. And, you know, somebody said to me on a recent film of ours, what percentage return can I expect to get from this investment? And I said, zero. (laughs) That doesn't mean you won't. But if you go into it expecting a, I'm going to get a 10 or 11 or 12% return, you're being unrealistic. You may. And what we try to do is mitigate the risk by having a certain level of experience and, and by trying to cherry pick scripts that have compelling stories and trying to pick actors that we believe if they aren't stars already have the potential to become stars. And Mean Creek won two Spirit Awards and one of the awards was for Ensemble Cast. And we just picked a cast. And one of the guys we picked had not been in a movie. He came in and he read and I thought it was great and he left that night for Prague and I said I think that's the guy and everyone said to me what do you mean you think that's the guy and I said this guy is like a cross between Burt Reynolds and Brad Pitt and everyone was like well that's kind of a weird combo and I said well <laughs> he has this kind of incredible appeal but he's got this kind of dark ruggedness as well the first review well, by the way we pushed our film three weeks so that we could accommodate him to get him because I thought it was that important the first review that came out about him said the film marks the debut of an actor who is the most unlikely cross between Brad Pitt and Burt Reynolds <laughs> with a little bit of Tom Cruise thrown in for wow. good measure. Who is this guy? He's a guy named Scott Mecklowitz. Scott is this wonderful actor who just hasn't 
launched. I mean, he's been in a bunch of things, but the star just hasn't taken off. And I believe, you know, he's incredibly appealing. He's really bright. He's just got that mix of vulnerability and strength. It's just a question of getting him in the right vehicle. Yeah. What rises up and when and how, that, going back to that idea of luck. Yeah, you know, it's just, T- luck you know, and timing. Luck and timing yeah. and what happens out there. It's just crazy. The other side of it is things do rise up for the audience, for the business, and for all this, for the movies and TV, that things happen and people respond to that. Absolutely, but the, I think the true test of talent is also longevity. To be a one-hit wonder, we've avoided that. I mean, Whitewater yeah. Films has avoided that. I mean, I like to have more hits in the big, strong, robust yeah. doubles and triples. This is like your library of films here. They're sort of like, some of them have sold, some haven't sold, and they're just out, you know. Actually, they've, they've, all, they've sold. all sold. They've all sold. We don't have a single film that hasn't sold. And do they sold, revert to you eventually if they've sold? Yeah, eventually but most of those deals are 15 years or 20 years so they're way down the line but I mean yes they're assets and what that library will be worth in a while it's hard to say it's hard to know what those libraries how that is in the future getting all these movies made and giving all these people opportunities to express themselves on film and make these films it's fantastic right now you have Destined in production Destined's coming world premiering at the LA Film Festival in June tell me a little bit about that I think it's a really exciting story it's about a 14 year old African American kid. When we meet him, he's a lookout for a drug gang. He gets busted by the cops. They go to arrest him. He takes off running. And in one version, he's tackled and handcuffed and booked. And in the other version, he breaks free and it manages to get away. And that's the opening sequence. It's like a sliding doors kind so of thing. Then, so then we awesome. meet him 20 years later. Uh-huh. And one version of him, in one version he's gone to jail and the other version he hasn't. And we meet him and one version is now a drug lord. Uh-huh. And the other version is a kind of trying to become middle class architect and they're both living in different sides of the same neighborhood Uh and their lives parallel each other and eventually cross we don't find out until two-thirds of the way through the film which guy went to prison and which guy didn't Uh and it's not exactly what you think i think it's incredibly powerful it's somewhat operatic and it builds to just this amazing climax second film by a very talented filmmaker who's the filmmaker he goes as q he's from detroit he's just a terrific guy. And we're, we shot in Detroit? Or we shot in Detroit on a very short schedule. How short was 20, it? maybe 23 days. What was the budget on that? You know, we never talk about okay, budgets, no, but it was a low, small, small. It was a, it fits our criteria. And are there any actors? Is it all local actors? Or? No, it's uh, Corey Hardwick is an actor who's considered sort of a star waiting to break. He's starting to break already. He's the driving force. And he's very good, but there's a wonderful group of supporting actors. It sounds fantastic. June, Congratulations. Uh, it's early it's June. LA Film Festival? LA Film Festival. Okay. And then we had a really interesting year. I was involved as an executive producer on, or, or Whitewater Films, as I take a personal credit was executive producer on Cartel Land which is nominated uh-huh. for Academy Award as yeah, a documentary an film. really strong and we had a film at Sundance called First Girl I Love which won the audience award at Next uh-huh. in the Next category we had a documentary there called Holy Hell that sold it's about a cult fascinating and very powerful we had a film at South by called and punching the clown which is now in play i mean we're hoping to wrap up a deal for it for distribution it's been a busy year you are whitewater and there's also other people who are in the company as well there are other people in the company so there's somebody who works with me sort of in the development side of things and somebody who works in the develop and post side 
We don't really have titles here. It's pretty uh-huh. fluid. I just try to avoid having staff meetings, but uh, <laughs> everyone else likes staff meetings. And when you're on a show, when you're on Transparent, you sort of just juggle and you're on your phone and you just do what it's you have a, to do. It's, you know, I've been really lucky in that sort of things have just, so far, that scheduling has kind of worked. But on Transparent, we haven't had a movie in production. It isn't like I'm a phenomenal scheduler. It just uh-huh. sort of has happened that way. There's a couple of projects we're looking at for this summer that we're hoping will go. There's a constant attempt to develop, but there's also a feeling that we shouldn't be trying to make movies until the scripts are really ready. On these independent productions, you'll work on the script before you go out for financing. You'll Yes, I think people only read a script once and they should see the best possible version. Whitewater's involvement can take on a lot of different roles. In First Girl I Loved, we put up a little bit of money and we gave script notes and we advised, but I wasn't on the set. On the other hand, King Jack, which we produced last year which won the audience award at Tribeca that was a love fest I just love that team I was on the set for the first 10 days we did a film that came out in January called Band of Robbers that I really liked it's a kind of modern imagining of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer as 30-somethings ne'er-do-well present day wonderful inventive film and I was on set every day for that did a film the last year called Seven Minutes, which is a heist movie that we shot in outside Seattle. I was on the set every day for that. There are different roles that we play, depending on the filmmaker and on the project. And as far as your own feature directing, you have projects that you're working on for yourself. You did the drone movie. Right. What's next? Do you have something? You know, I have a film that I've been working on for a long time called Jimmy Six. It's a screenplay that was a blacklisted screenplay. We've scouted the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. The tax credits folded in Michigan. The film takes place in the winter. The climax of the film takes place on a frozen lake. There's a particular window we have to hit, and we missed it this year. And it's really a two-character piece. It's a road trip. What I've learned about right now about the feature business is that for a movie, this is probably a three to four, maybe five million dollar movie. But unless we have stars in those two roles, we can't make the movie. We've almost gone out to actors when we thought we were ready. That's also a case where the script wasn't ready for a long time. The script was 80% there, maybe 85% there, and then we brought on a writer and moved it maybe 12 yards. I mean, it was a little disappointing that it didn't get further. And then we brought on this writer who knocked it out of the park, not to mix metaphors, but I mean, not not only to knock it out of the park, but I mean, nobody can find the ball. That's how well he did. Some of it was my feeling. I mean, I hadn't been able to articulate what I thought was missing from the script until suddenly one day I went oh, I know what I haven't been saying and this is a genre movie about a guy looking for the killer of his father and he and this enforcer go up to the upper peninsula but really what the film has to be to rise above a genre level film is it has to be a journey about this young man trying to find his father not physically find him but locate what did his father mean who was his father once that kind of emotional journey began to parallel the physical journey Suddenly the movie elevated. The writer was really able to bring that kind of storytelling to life. I feel like that's a pretty exciting project. It sounds fantastic. So you need winter in the Upper Peninsula. Well, I think we need actors who are available 
for that period. Right. So you have those and big which names, which is good in a way because names. you have a time frame. Right. And so if you can slot the time frame with people, then right. something specific. So we have a, we have an idea. Good. We have a new idea for it. So it's this young guy and the crime family enforcer. We had talked a little bit to Mickey Rourke about it, and he'd be great. But Mickey doesn't get out of bed for less than a couple of million dollars. It yeah. seems like we sort of moved off that. Although I'd love to work with him, and I almost worked with him a few years ago, and I think that'd be great fun. But there's another guy who one day I woke up and I went, oh, he'd be great. Then he was nominated for an Academy Award, and I was like, oh, why? I took too long. I went, you know, and then he didn't win the Academy Award, and I was like, oh, this this might work out. <laughs> and so I think it's a little too soon to go after yeah. him because I think that I think he's still annoyed. And, and you don't want to name the name, but uh, I will. right. Okay, I'll look right. at the list of the nominees. Yeah, you'll know right away. Those actors who you're referring to as stars who for a six million dollar movie will make money available to you in the foreign markets. Is that what you're talking about? If I came to you and I said I have Mickey Rourke and uh, Brad Pitt, but I'm trying to make this for six million dollars, and the first question you would say to me is, well, why six million dollars? Why not bigger? Or they're going to do a six million dollar movie? Why? And the answer would be because they love the script yeah. and they're going to be partners in the film. I mean, they're going to yeah. be genuine partners and. One of the nice things is that we can point to a film like Mean Creek where people were profit participants and they made money. They actually got profit, shares of net profit. That is, in Hollywood generally, that's an idle threat. You're going to have points. But we've proven that we can build a model that actually provides that. And so if the actor loves the script and then you give his agent or his manager the rationale for why it's a good idea for them right. financially to do this, right. but you still have to pay them a chunk of money up front. Well, you pay them some money, but sometimes they defer a big chunk of it and become an investor. They're not putting money up per se, yeah. but that deferment is treated as if they had put that amount of their salary into the film. And that game of making engagement with them to get them to do that, that's a careful, long-term, delicate process. Yeah, and there are people who have far better relationships with agents and managers and talent than I do. That's one of the things, if I look back, we were talking about regrets before. But, you know, I look back and I thought, well, if you do good work, that's really what it's all about. Well, it is about good work, but it's also about understanding the advantage of having really strong personal relationships with people. I look back and I realize that, that, boy, there have been a couple of instances where people have reached out to me that I didn't get, I didn't understand the gesture, and I didn't really reciprocate. Some of those things have come back to bite me a little bit. To start out and try to fine-tune all this stuff where things are just rolling toward you, you think, I should have done Y instead of X. Your initial instinct might have been for good reason sometimes. It always is better to build as much community as possible. Yeah, and I think one of the things things that film schools don't uh, stress enough is that building of community. It's not only look to your left and look to your right. Those are your colleagues for the rest of your life, but also a little bit about how does one form relationships. i never forget, I had done a pilot at Universal TV, and we screened it, and we were sitting around afterwards, and the president of Universal made some comment. I said, that's not the worst idea I've ever heard. And everyone kicked me under the table. And I, you know, I was just like, you know, is that real? I mean, what? I just said it was. But afterwards, everyone was like, Rick, you can't say stuff like that. And I was like, I mean, I was just being honest. Yeah, you're an artist. You but, know, you're allowed to You know, be but I'd like to have that one back. I don't think I gained anything by that comment. It was just something I, I just wasn't attuned yeah. to the nuances of yeah. politics. And, and that man went on to become... Well, there's another instance like that where that guy went on to become the head of a major studio, and I could have been a real close buddy of his, and I didn't go to a basketball game with him. The, the only uh, time I lost my temper with one of my agent's assistants 
once, and I had the right to, but and I wasn't that bad, but I was really like, he did something really that wasn't right, and I was really upset about it, and I told him. And that guy went on to become a highly successful studio executive and producer. Right. The only one. Right. You know, so. And those guys have long memories. Oh, they tend to go. Yeah, yeah. So Tom Benedict's got this great idea. Yeah, who else are we yeah, talking oh, about? I don't know. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, I passed on somebody. I just like went to a meeting, and I felt like, I don't think this is going to work. I don't like... And the guy ended up becoming like a huge producer. Right. And I went to a meeting with him later and I realized he never forgot that right. I was brought into this meeting by my agents and there wasn't something that I could do at right. the time. He still is holding that. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, they do. And you so, know, and you I, can't say listen, yes to everything. I had, you know. I used to be a serious tennis player and I was right out of AFI and I went to AFI and, and I was in a, a celebrity pro tournament as a pro down at a place called La Costa and I was walking back with a guy who was running a studio at the time and as we were walking he said to me you know Rick my assistants are driving me crazy I think I'm going to send them to Europe why don't you come work for me and I said you know if I had two lifetimes I'd come to work with you in a second but I really want to direct and I think I'm moving in that direction I feel like if I come to work for you I'm never going to direct and he said okay he basically never talked to me again. I know people who like bad boys and they don't like American Dreamer. They like American Dreamer and they don't like bad boys. But really, I've met somebody who just hates all my work. And this guy, anytime you bring my name up, he's like, that guy has the Well, team. you're involved in these vibrant independent films. You're helping people make their films. You're getting all these stories on the screen. And you're working on one of the best shows in television that's ever been done right now. Your instincts have been correct. Well, you always feel the grass is a little greener elsewhere. Yeah. You, know, you always feel like, well, yeah, what if I had done that or that? My son is now a cinematographer, and he's really talented. And I've worked with him a bunch of times, and it's really fun because I never get to finish a sentence. He just knows me that well. And he shot drones, and our idea was to essentially make this film look like a submarine picture because it's that claustrophobic. And it just has this claustrophobia to it and the color scheme and all of that there's one or two cinematographers that he competes with and they're older and more experienced and they get jobs and and they sort of beat him out and he's always like god damn that fucking guy you know yeah. and i say to him no i have a guy like that there's a director that went to afi behind me and he's gotten some great jobs and i always sort of hold myself up to mm. what he's doing and i said you know in the end i understand that but in the end what jobs that guy gets or what job the director rival gets, they have nothing to do with what you and I do. They really don't. They yeah. feel like they do. You waste a lot of time yeah. worrying about that that's stuff. That's the mind game. That's yeah. the mind game. Then there's the work, and you, you lose yourself in the work, and that's... And that's a long time game. ago, this writer friend of mine gave me a book to read about golf, which is not a sport I'm really terribly interested in. But in this book was this wonderful phrase. This guy goes out one day to play golf with a young pro in Scotland, and he's just hitting the ball everywhere, and he's beginning to get really frustrated. And the pro says to him, you need to think more about nature. And the golfer says, the fuck does North Atlantic have to do with, with golf? And he says, no, no, not that NATO. NATO as in not attached to outcome. And this phrase hit me like a bullet between the eyes because all my life I have been Tato, totally attached to outcome. And I grew up in a sports world where you were judged only by whether you won or lost. And that philosophy sort of went over into the arts, which is really the wrong yeah. place. I won't say it changed my life, but it really changed the way it's I started so, to look at things. It's so important. It's a and process, I start, not Right, process. That's why I was pushing for your title, process. And it's what I teach and what I espouse is... If you really care about the process, 
then the outcome will take care of itself. And even if it doesn't appear to be the outcome you want, you don't know that that outcome, that loss, as it were, isn't pushing you to a greater level of process. Absolutely. All right, Rick, that was brilliant. That's a great story and very inspiring and wise. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I well, really thanks for, it, thanks for coming over. And I think you should put your clothes back on now. I will. I will. And that's it for now. If you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedict.